Welcome to Connecting the Community podcast. I am your host, Marge Andre. I will be connecting you to people, organizations, and events that create community. I am creating this podcast in Richmond Hill, an eclectic and very culturally diverse community with lots of trees and streams and interesting people just up the hill from Toronto. On this podcast, I'm talking with Barry Peters, the music director at the Richmond Hill United Church. Welcome, Barry. Thank you very much. I am glad we found the time to have this conversation. I've got lots of questions for you. First, please tell us a little about yourself and your musical talents. Well, I'd first like to say that I feel that I've been one of the luckiest people in the world to have a life filled with music for as long as I can remember. I'd like to share a rather unusual story from my early childhood. First, my mother was a wonderful pianist and organist, but for some reason, unbeknownst to me, she hesitated to send me for formal lessons. And I couldn't have had anything to do with anything financially because at that period in time, lessons were about two dollars each. I think she was maybe concerned that I would not take it seriously and practice to the degree that she would want me to. So anyway, I thought to myself, this is absolutely killing me. I've got to figure out a way to play. So I devised a little method a personal numerical method for playing hymns. So I figured out an aunt of mine taught me how to read the treble clef and bass clef. And then I thought, well, middle C would be one, D would be two, E would be three, etc., etc. Plus signs would be a sharp, minus signs would be a flat. So when I would get my allowance, 10 cents back then, I'd walk downtown and I'd buy a scribbler and I would notate all of these hymns. Now, back then, we're talking about the old Blue Anglican hymn book, which had, I believe, 808 hymns. And I, as a little boy, transcribed every single one of them. And I put the title at the top of the scribbler. And then I wrote out in the treble clef, they would say it would be three and five. If there was a sharp, there'd be pluses. And it would look like a pile of math equations. The only thing that would make one realize that wasn't the case was the title at the top of the scribbler. <clears throat> so I really can't remember how long it took me. But boy, did I ever put a lot of work into that. And I wow. just, I'll show you. I'm going to learn to play hymns and do what you do if it kills me. So one time I can remember taking this scribbler to school by mistake and the teacher looking at this and being absolutely baffled and wondering what is going on with this really strange kid. Um, and there was a hymn I remember being at the top of the page and the teacher looking at this and in my hour of need, Jesus helped me. And of course, that morning, we were having a math exam. And I guess she probably figured, well, at least he's hoping for some kind of 
divine intervention, and there's all the plus signs and minus signs and numbers all over these pages. So anyway, on it went from there. That was my first experience in church music. And um, from there on in, I could fill in for my mother. I played for the Sunday school. And of course, shortly after that, I think she came to the realization, he's really serious about this. So I began taking formal lessons and skipped grades, three, four grades at a time um, with the conservatory series. And But it all started for me figuring out this numerical system and playing by ear for my uncles and fathers who were fiddlers and my father and his siblings. But anyway, I'll get to that a little bit later when we're talking about the whole maritime aspect and the element of that. Wow, what a story. And these scribblers, do they still exist? No, you know what? I wish that they did. I can't remember. We used to call them in Cape Breton bearcat scribblers because they had a picture of a bear on the front cover. Mm-hmm. And they had big lines. And I meticulously printed out 808 hymns. And I think I did all the psalms that would be appointed for a particular Sunday to Anglican chant. I put those all numerically and enabled myself to be able to do what I love so much that she was doing from such a very young age. Still trying to imagine these books, these scribblers. Okay, you have alluded to that you are from down east. And you know, I have this belief that there are more people, a higher percentage of amazing musicians from the East Coast than there are from other places in Canada. Am I right? Would you agree? I would and absolutely would that agree. Be? Okay, so you agree. Why? Well, I think um, two reasons. I think of a lot of it has to do with the historical Celtic influence and the influx of so many of the Celtic people immigrating to Cape Breton in the mid-1700s um, with the expulsion of the Celts from the Highlands. And a lot of them came to Cape Breton and they brought the tradition of fiddling and music with them and Gaelic singing. And I think that just kind of carried on from generation to generation for hundreds of years within families. And I think because of that, with and you look at all of these various families that grew up within a certain culture that nothing else was really going on but music making you know, within remote areas of the island. I can remember as a little boy going to play for my one of my many uncles who um, would take me out to these remote parts of homes where there was no electricity. There would be only hurricane lamps hanging up in the house. People sat around and spoke Gaelic and sang Gaelic and played the fiddle and that's basically people went to one another's homes mm. and shared uh, music making. Mm. It was such a vital part of people's lives, working songs, mm. milking songs, where people would milk their cows. There were songs that went with that. Mm. And just so many parts of day-to-day lives that people lived were immersed in music and singing and fiddling and dancing and 
you know. Hmm. So, so, you know, I think I was very, very lucky. Yeah. My father had seven brothers and six sisters. They all played the piano or fiddled. Every one of them or sang. My mother had seven sisters and two brothers. And I had six siblings. But music was constantly in the home. I had a brother who was on Don Messer's Sing Along Jubilee. People from that show would come to our house. Um, my mother was organist of a big Roman Catholic church. And back then, the mass was in Latin. And I had to sit with her on the organ bench. And I would be read the riot act. Don't you dare touch those pedals. And I thought, someday I'm going to. I might not now, but I will someday. Uh, yeah. And just hearing all the beautiful, beautiful Gregorian chant um, would really move me from the time that I was just a little boy. So yeah. the host was always filled with music making. If I was either courting for one of my many uncles who played or my father or my brother, two, two of my brothers and a sister had a folk trio that toured Canada and won competitions, but it was just Music was just constantly in the home all the time. Ooh. Okay, I think you you have convinced me why there is so much so many musicians out east. So both I think genetics and culture are the is the answer to that. So I think yeah. you're exactly right. Okay, so you are the music director at the Richmond Hill United Church. How long have you been there? And you know what does a music director do? Well, I've been at RHUC now for 33 years. My first Sunday was September the 8th, 1991. Hmm. And I can remember walking into that church for my audition and just getting a feel for this beautiful space. There was a magic or just almost like a spiritual vibe and feel that was in that sanctuary. However, that <laughs> I was um, practicing in the sanctuary and they were interviewing someone before me. And as the day wore on and the evening wore on, the person prior to me, they were still interviewing and it was getting dusk and then dark. And I was sitting in the church. I had no idea where the lights were. So I sat in the church in the pitch dark until almost 10 o'clock before they come in and went, oh, yeah, you're an expert. So I thought, anyway, it's been 33 wonderful years. I really believe that music has a transformative power to touch people's hearts in so many ways. And I feel that that is actually what my role is as a music director, to bring people into what the Celtic people call that beautiful thin place where it evokes an emotion within the human soul that can be through hymnody that can be through music that the choir sings it's to touch the human soul and um i guess again going back to my early childhood years i was lucky to sing under this phenomenal conductor who was a nun sister Rita Claire, who just always brought the spiritual out in a piece of music and could touch people in such a beautiful way. And I think that should be the job of any music director. And then of course, with collaboration with a minister who would then choose themes, I would go into our library and say, you know what? 
there's a perfect piece of music that will suit the theme of what we're going to be doing over a certain period of time. And then what then would happen within the framework of that service would be this beautiful tapestry that's woven between the word, the spoken, and the song. And it's like, you know, the old single, sometimes the music can take us to a place where the spoken sometimes can't, mm-hmm. you know. And so I feel that's always been my role. And here at, at RHUC, we have a spiritual practice team that's almost like a liaison that would then say, well, down the road, why do we think about doing this? Why do we think about a jazz service? Why do we think about a Celtic service? or a Teze service, so that there's that variety, various ways that we can, you know, seek to, you know, bring people together and and a beautiful way around music making. Mm -hmm. Very good. So practically, you're not at the church every day, but many days, and you have choir practice, but like, are you busy in there? Like, what else do you... What do you really do? Like you direct the choir, you do Sunday services, you are there for um, practice, like the special concerts. I think you give music lessons. So anything else that you do? Well, I think that's about it. That's okay. That sounds like enough, but just curious what your job, what is a music director? What do you have in your to-do list for the day? So, Well, and that would be a bit depending on the day. Now today, for example, I've, had five students, mm. but my highlight of the week, of course, is my choir practices because I feel that they're an extension of who I am musically, that I can express myself through the music through them. So they're like a vessel or an extension musically. Okay. And I find that so many times when we touch that beautiful place spiritually or that Celtic thin place, we know it and we can feel that together. And so mm-hmm. I just feel that they're just a part of me and I find that I learn so much through them. Okay. You know, every week they give to me so much. Okay. Now, um, it's called a chancel choir. What, like, what does chancel mean? Like, is it different than a, another type of choir? Well, you know what? Not really. The chancel is just a part of the actual building, the sanctuary, which is the front. The chancel is always at the front of the church. And I think rather than call it a senior choir, because the inference could mean this is a choir of all seniors. Mm-hmm. And old people. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And, you know, so many times that stereotype is always been used. Oh, that old choir, that seniors choir. And certainly that's not the case here. And it certainly wasn't the case 33 years ago when I started on the 8th of September. So I think at the time we thought, well, there was a junior choir, there was a youth choir. And um, I thought, well, we thought, why not call it a chancel choir? They required that, of course, they sing up in the chancel. So that's where that came from, yeah. Okay, thank you for answering that question I've had for a long time. Uh, the church is very fortunate to have a beautiful pipe organ. Can you describe it? How would you describe it? Well, it's interesting because this year we're celebrating 100 years. Um, my 
Baby Alucard or one of my dearest musical companions, mm-hmm. the organ at this church, is 100 years young. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's very, very interesting to note the history of this, too, because of even music in this church. There was a delay of over three years, well, 100 years ago, because I couldn't decide how much money to spend on the organ. So they thought, well, what will we do? We can't really put an instrument of the size that we would really like to have because it's going to cost so much money. Now, the funny part about this was the installation of the organ at that period, which was never completed, cost this church $5,000. Isn't that wild? And um, 1,500 of that was raised by the UCW here at the church at that time. Before that, there was a um, an upright piano for three years. Before that, a pump organ that was there for 40 years. And they used to have to hire boys to pump the bellows for the pump organ on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. That became really problematic because sometimes the boys wouldn't show up or they'd fall asleep. So that kind of <laughs> didn't go down. Well. Okay. Okay. Now, but can you describe the music and like how many pipes, huge pipes are at the front of the church? Well, in total, there's 2,136 pipes in this organ. Um, the organ was finally installed at cost 5,000, as I said, but um, there was work done, significant work in 1977, and it was finally completed in 1996 with the addition of 13 new stops which enabled repertoire from any historic period to be played, and it can support congregational singing to a full house. So we have 2,136 pipes made of wood or metal. The longest pipe would be 12 feet long, and the smallest five inches with a width the size of a pencil. The largest pipe weighs 60 pounds, and there have been 19 organists since 1880, and I've survived the longest yet. Okay, congratulations. Oh, oh, Ooh. Okay, I had no idea there are that many pipes. Like I, I think I, when I'm in the church, I look up and I see, I don't know, two dozen. So obviously there's a lot more I don't see. And if see. you look way, way up at the top, you see the tiny little ones, and they're actually the loudest pipes. And they're just the size of a pencil, and you see they sit way up at the top of the organ. They're called mixtures. Okay. And, and they're the really high-pitched ones. That, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. There is also, at the front of the church, a beautiful grand piano. And you sometimes play that. So how do you decide where do you play this big organ, or do you play this nice, big, beautiful grand piano? Well, it's interesting because I've always really loved both. I mean, I studied piano as my minor in university, organ my major, but I've always loved both instruments equally well. In this particular case, we have a beautiful Kauai grand that's there. A lot will depend on the nature of the piece of music that's written. For example, some hymns lend themselves beautifully to the piano, while others would lend themselves just by virtue of the way that they're written for the piano. 
So it's it depends actually on the construct and the way that a hymn or a song is written. Some wouldn't work well on the piano at all, where others would. So I make the decisions based on that. And in the last few years, we have we have what's called centering music. So that as people come in and the service begins, I'll play a piece of music, which I guess for lack of a better word, we could call mood music. Hmm. Just to kind of center people in their thoughts. And everything. I generally have a tendency to play more contemplative, mm-hmm. kind of calmer, quieter pieces on the piano. Yeah, okay. And for some reason, that's been my preference. Mm-hmm. Use the piano as the instrument for that. Okay, very very interesting. Okay, for those who are not really familiar with the United Church, have not yet ventured in, um, it is an old building by Canadian standards. I think it's it is over two hundred years old. It has amazing acoustics. Uh, what is it about this space, the sanctuary? that has it to be so what, acoustically ideal? There's probably a better way of saying that, but it's just beautiful sound. Why? Well, I think the height of the building, hmm. um, the width and the height, you've got a wide building, and height will always <clears throat> give a very effective, bright acoustic. I, I personally have always felt that the acoustic is like a living organism within a building. You can hear it. You can feel a beautiful vibrancy. And the first time that I walked into this church, again, 33, I just felt almost like a spiritual presence with, with that acoustic. It just, And, of course, it's so complementary to a voice, to a singer, to a choir. And as the great composer J.S. Bach always said, the best stop on the organ, any organ, is the acoustic that will give it that vibrancy of sound. And it's really weird over my years of playing concerts in various churches and recitals. The minute I walk into the building, I think I'm going to have a good time here playing this instrument if it has a good acoustic. And a dead room, it's so hard for singers to sing and feel happy in a room where there's no acoustic. Mm. So we're very, very lucky here. I think this building has one of the most beautiful acoustics around. Okay, very good. Uh, Coming up on December 10th, uh, there is the annual Carols by Candlelight. Very much uh, looking forward to attending again this year. Can you tell us more about this special performance? Uh, And will you tell us a few of the pieces that will be included? Well, for me, I think the... We it's been called many things over the years. Lessons of Carols, we've called it Carols by Candlelight. Um, I think the biggest thing for me personally and for a lot of people within the community here and within the church, I think it incorporates um combining the visual, well, the light like candlelight, the atmosphere, which kind of has a mystic, uh, kind of spiritual sense to it so you get the the aesthetic of the visual with the candlelight uh the music beautiful poetry traditional carols which i think just evokes emotions of the season and it kind of sets people up i think for that whole season of christmas 
Mm-hmm. And I think it, again, it's 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 the visual, it's the spoken, it's the music that's all incorporated, incorporated into this service that I think is very beautiful. And I think I every time I think of this service, I think of everybody singing "Silent Night" with the church filled with candlelight at the very end. Mm-hmm. And there's just something that I think is what we call again the thin place. It goes beyond the spoken. That magic of people sit there in silence with a lit candle. There's just something that, for mm-hmm. me, is just pretty yeah. profound. Yeah. Yeah, for me too. Uh, so we're singing Silent Night. Is there anything else that you've got lined up that you're oh, going to tell yes. us about? Oh, well, we'll have some, uh, some other traditional carols for people to sing. Mm-hmm. Um, Karen Dale, our minister, will together, we put the service together. Together we'll find readings that um which this is something she is absolutely brilliant and gifted at and we all find oh wow that reading will just go beautifully and guess what i have a piece of music that will go beautifully with that so we kind of put our heads together come up with again consistently um, something that will be connected thematically to a reading to a piece of music throughout. Um, I always love to feature a few pieces by Canadian composers. So this year, we're going to do a piece by Bev Lewis, and she's a fellow Mount A graduate, um, and she plays at Bathurst Street United Church, and she's a very talented composer, so we're going to do a piece by her, and also a piece by Michael Coughlin, who teaches music at York University here. So I love to incorporate works by women composers as Mm -hmm. well as by Canadians. I think that's very important. I am really looking forward to this December 10th concert, and I will put uh, links to it uh, in the uh, podcast notes. Now, we've alluded to it in this conversation. You've alluded to it. The real importance, a relationship of music, and church services. So can you really articulate your thoughts, both as a music director and as a, an individual, about the importance of music? Well, I think that music transcends words. It goes beyond the spoken. For me, there's an intimate um, sacredness that touches the heart. And I think for me, it's if for people who experience that on a Sunday morning, and if I feel I've had anything to do with that, that is so meaningful for me then to know that. So, and I think that's when we come together on Sundays, I think it's my role to try to achieve that mm-hmm. and together for people to experience the unspoken many times that mm-hmm. we feel. Very good. So, you know, the church Sunday service, 1030 a.m., you don't have to register. You don't need to get dressed up. You can just come to the front door and enjoy the service. So I um, really encourage people to do that. So, Barry, is there anything else, any special things that you've done? Oh, let me see. Well, I've done some pretty neat things over the years that Mm -hmm. I think, I guess, were a huge privilege. And, um, I remember playing 
a papal mass at the Vatican in Rome and singing on several occasions at Carnegie Hall, making recordings with the Elmerizer singers, singing on several soundtracks to movies with the other singers, Agnes of God, several other things. But I just felt that those things were just all privileges. I was just maybe at the right place at the right mm -hmm. time. And just to have been so lucky to have worked under wonderful conductors like Elmer Eisler, Sister Rita Clare, Lydia Adams, another fellow <clears throat> Maritimer from Cape Breton and Mount A graduate, who are just absolute musical geniuses. And I was always so inspired by them and um, always felt, well, humbled by them because they're such great human beings along with great artists. And I felt, you know, they knew how to touch people and bring people to music. So I feel I've, I've been very, very lucky. Yeah, and maybe. in so many ways spoiled that I got to sing for these people. Yeah. You know? That does sound special. Okay. Anything else that you want to add, Barry? Well, <clears throat> you know, I can say this from being involved in this church and being on this staff, that this is one of the most amazing places one could be. Um, this church just epitomizes community, the caring for one another, the support. It's There's just this incredible feeling of a special family that I found when I came here 33 years ago, and it's still here. So many people who have worked tirelessly over the years who are part of this community. I, I know I shouldn't maybe single people out, but I think of Donna Smith, mm -hmm. who founded the food bank. I look at people like Lynn May, who has done so much around outreach into the community, around refugees. I look at Sandra Loughton with all the work that she has done, Tracy Wixon. These are the people that are part of this, and so many more. I look at Ann Layton Brown, who conducted the youth choir here, for well over 30 years and put on phenomenal productions here. And it was such a privilege for me to work with her. And um, just all the way that people give tirelessly here and never look for any credit for that. They walk the walk and mm -hmm. they do it. Yeah. And so for those people to all come together and be part of this community, and there's so many more, um, I think it's pretty phenomenal to be a part of this place. And so for anybody walking in here, I want to say, you have no idea what these people are like here. Because mm -hmm. if you did, you'd keep coming every week. <laughs> and you. I've never seen such a, a body of people where there's such unconditional love, care, and support. You know, that's you see it every week. It It, it has more of what I would even say, a Unitarian feeling, you know, yeah. a universal feeling where denomination is not important. Mm -hmm. You could be Muslim, you could be Jewish, you could be, you name it. It's all part of being connected to a family of people where you see people where there's a crisis. They're there in a minute, bringing meals to one another, helping people out. It's really pretty phenomenal. Yeah. And you don't always see that. So that's the special thing about this church okay. and the support that I've been given 
over the years here. I mean, I forgot to mention who the choir sang with Andre Bocelli once mm -hmm. at the Air Canada Centre. And again, did a lot of really neat things. And I'm very proud of them. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful sounding uh, choir. Uh, you've sort of alluded to this, but you've talked more about the church. Name one thing you really like about this community. So beyond the church. I think one experience is, as well I have, because I grew up in a smaller community in Cape Breton, you always get a sense of a more tight-knit place, you know? I love going to the Three Coins. I love the Neils across the street. You get to know these people who are running these businesses. Mm -hmm. And there's that wonderful sense of familiarity mm -hmm. and where people embrace one another and mm -hmm. know one another and into the wider community here. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just so great to see. Yeah. Okay. Very good. No, that's, thank you for those warm words. Makes uh, me feel good. Uh, so thank you again for and taking you, the time. Oh, no. And you as well. You're pretty amazing with all that you do in this community and how you spread such joy and just, you know, reach out and encourage when Leona Boyd sang here with her choir. You were phenomenal in all the work that you did. No, you it's, know, I've been it, very fortunate. Like you said, there's just, I, I, I am a community connector, and this has been a great community to be connecting. There are just so many good people doing just so many great and things. And you're so. the big link, and it's Thank you. you. And then I look at Deb Pratton as well. Yes, yeah, her. yeah. It's absolutely phenomenal. And it, it's these links of all these amazing people who are all there for one another. And over the years, Deb has always been there to say, what can I do to... You know, make flyers, post flyers of what can I do to put things out there to enhance stuff, the things that are going on at the church. Yeah. They're all the unsung heroes that are doing all the work here. Yeah. There are lots of great people. So that's a great way to end this podcast. Thanks again, Barry. I hope to see you around town or at least at the church very soon. Thank you for listening. I would very much appreciate you sharing this podcast. Please tune in next week as we continue to explore the community. Consider emailing me at marge, M-A-R-J, at margeandre.com. I welcome suggestions for podcast guests. Stay well, stay connected. <laughs>